Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach at SumatiSparks.com. And tonight I am really excited to have as our guest, Susan Campbell. Susan Campbell is an esteemed elder in the field of relationships and communication, the author of several bestsellers. I've been reading her books for over 25 years And Susan is actually uh, someone who has about 50 years' experience in the field, and she basically helps individuals, couples, and groups to be more skillfully and compassionately honest with one another. Welcome to the show, Susan. Thanks, Sumati. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Me too. So glad to have you here. So, um, So, Susan, yeah, I just recently took a class with you, which was wonderful. It was about relationship repair. Um, really excellent information and so easy to follow along with your um, syllabus. Um, But I was surprised when we started talking about having you on the show to hear that you have practiced open relationship in the past in your history. So would you be willing to share with us a little bit about your story and um, how that came about and how that was for you? Sure. Well, um, there's, I'm starting to think in terms of, the way I first got into non-monogamy was kind of accidental non-monogamy in my uh, first two marriages in my 20s. I'll I'll define accidental non-monogamy in a minute, but uh, (laughs) it wasn't until uh, after I was single and, and just dating a few people serially, exclusively, that I began to practice conscious polyamory where we were honest about everything and talked about our feelings and and really used it. I I used it for inner development and inner self-awareness. But I want to say something about myself, just to give you a background. My uh, first two husbands were both, well, one was a dental student, my first husband, and then my other husband was... uh, a PhD psychology student, and I was already, I wasn't doing school then. I, I had my degrees already, and uh, I had more energy for sex than they did, so I just had affairs. But then I would tell, then I'd come home from a conference, you know, and I'd tell them about it. And so that, I, I sort of just naturally found myself not being able to be monogamous, okay, and uh, didn't break up the marriages or anything. It wasn't, in in those days, it wasn't that big a deal, you know. I, when we talked about our feelings and it was deep and it was painful, but it wasn't like, you know, I'm leaving you. That was never, Mm -hmm. uh, never the issue. And uh, we, you know, the marriages went on and they broke up for other reasons. But then when, uh, let's see, it was probably the mid-70s, it just seemed like everybody in my gang, we were, even though we might, I had a boyfriend, uh, we'd have other lovers too occasionally. And we'd talk about it, but we decided, I know the one thing, first we started out, because we were both psychologists, the first first guy, and we started out telling every little detail. We said, oh, you know, we're really going to make this a growth experience. And uh, then after about, two months of that, we said, let's not do this anymore. We don't need <laughs> to spend our precious time talking about what you did with her. And um, so, so, I mean, I've had so many 
experiences here, so I want to get to the really rich ones. So that was when I was single in my 30s, several of those kind, where I'd have a boyfriend for two or three years, but we'd both have other lovers occasionally. But, you know, it was clearly a committed thing, a primary. And then I got married again around age 40 or late 30s, and at that time, I was ready to not be monog—I mean, to be monogamous. I was ready to not do the poly thing, even though we started out with other lovers at first. Uh, by the time we got married, I really wanted to just be with him. And uh, about two months into the marriage, he tells me he can't be monogamous, and so I'm crushed. But mm. you know, being experienced and being a growth junkie like I am, I took it on and I said, okay. What he said to me, though, this is this is important because I want to just see there might be some other people who run into this. He said, you know, I'm just finding my real attractiveness to women because he had been kind of not that attractive in high school and in his 20s, but then in his 30s he got with me and we became what we joked as world-famous couple. We were doing couples workshops together. I had come out with the book The Couple's Journey, and we started doing workshops, and all of a sudden he was kind of a a growth uh, leader, and a lot of Uh women were being attracted to him. Uh, So I had to deal with that, and he said, you know, I I need this. I need this for my own masculinity, for my aliveness, my confidence. And I, I actually felt empathy for him. And mm-hmm. um, so I said, I want, you know, I want you to have that. And yet I, it's not what I want. And I was you know, in pain and all that. But I tried to be a good sport. And I, for a couple of years, you know, I had plenty of other lovers and had fun. But finally I just didn't want it anymore. I just mm-hmm. really, um, you know, we had a we had good communication. We talked about everything, but there were just too many times when he was out with somebody else when I was available, and we didn't have real good agreements around that. And, and you know, if we could have, I think we could we could have stuck it out. Mm-hmm. And so that was my main. That was conscious. We were, two years, we were consciously poly. It was very public. We would talk about all of us, all of our stuff as we were leading, co-leading the workshops, and uh, it was rich. It was rich, and I think the the deep thing I got out of that a feeling how much pain I felt around hearing the word no, no, I don't want to be with you. You know my rejection fears, and so I learned then how to comfort myself and nurture myself and not stop desiring him. There's a tendency to want to shut down your wants and needs if your needs are not getting met, but I made it a, a a real practice not to do that, so I would still come on to him and try to seduce him and do whatever I could to get him to stay home with me, and you know not too proud to beg all that and i uh-huh. it, i i learned so much it was it was a very very valuable experience just in terms of me learning how to be with emotional pain understand that it, his desire wasn't a, a an actual rejection of me 
but I still got that rejection button pushed. And, and so I began to really understand about buttons. And you know now my latest book is about what to do when your buttons get pushed and how to nurture yourself and ask for reassurance. And So I started that journey back then in my late 30s through that relationship. Well, yeah, you brought us full circle with that that uh, answer because that's definitely some some good stuff I want to dig into a little deeper. Um, but I want to ask you first, um, you said that everybody seemed, all the people around you seem to have other lovers. Do you think that our mm-hmm. society in general has gotten more conservative or is it more that people have hookup dates and use Tinder and all that kind of stuff before they're married, but then when they're married, do you feel like it's more conservative now than it was in the 70s or 60s? Well, I was in a real alternative subculture. You know, we were mm. all growth center leaders. We were we were what what you might call change agents, you know. So change mm. agents mm-hmm. love change. We love variety. We love new you know, new experiences. That is not the typical mainstream society. Uh so that's just a one one context thing. Uh Got it. University professors and people who hung out at Esalen, okay? <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I don't know exactly what the current... There's, there's different ages now, you know? Most of, most of my clients want to be monogamous, but uh, mm-hmm. I talk to the college students. <clears throat> I go give guest lectures at college classes, and it seems like the women want monogamy and the men don't. In the typical, mm. we're talking mainstream college population, and the women are mm-hmm. are putting up with it, kind of. That's my mm. general impression. I, you know, I have lots of clients who are on Tinder and this and that, but uh, frankly, the, the, it's not working. Most of the people, you know, their whole relationship thing is not working. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. even know what to say or to your asking that question another way because I don't see any yeah, real no. happy, successful relationships, whether they're poly or non-poly. Frankly, but of course I'm a right. Yeah, we therapist. need you. People need people need uh, to study your books and really get the communication thing down. Um, but I do I do want to go back to this before we lose the thread um, because I did get that from the class that I took with you and I started reading your five-minute relationship repair book. Um, And I'm really impressed that really early on you worked on the rejection fear, which is a huge button for people and why so many people feel like they could never be poly. Um, And it is really common to shut down your heart um, to not have to feel those painful emotions. So maybe you could share a little bit with our listeners about one or two of the tools that you have. I know it's hard to just take a little piece out because it's a whole process, but um, just a hint at what are some of the ways that someone cannot shut down their heart when their rejection button is pushed. Well, one of the things that I, I teach in the basically what to do when you're triggered. I mean, that's the and the practice is the five-minute mm-hmm. relationship repair practice. One of the things I teach is that it's kind of normal to get triggered around things like rejection and abandonment and fear of not being enough or or uh, not being lovable. These are these are kind of normal. Uh, these these things are kind of lurking. These insecurities 
slash fears are, are kind of lurking in the shadows anyway for probably 80% of the population, okay? Not just mm-hmm. people who come to therapy with me. Uh, so first I want to kind of normalize this for the the people who read the book or, or come to see me is that there's, there's nothing horribly wrong with you or your relationship if you feel intense pain sometimes and can hardly see straight. You know, it's almost like survival panic because we all have this part of our brain that's associated with the the separation it's 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 called the survival alarm system and it's the emotional center of the brain uh called the amygdala by brain science and that survival alarm system is always scanning for am i safe with this one that i love uh is is am i going to be abandoned am i am i enough and that sort of thing you're scanning for your worst fear to happen so that usually doesn't come up right in the beginning stages of re- relationships unless you start out poly and then it might, you know, it might start <laughs> right away. So you can really you can really jump start the growth process, folks, by just being poly. <laughs> there's some truth to that, but you have to realize what you might be getting into because the goal is to keep your heart open or to at least be able to open your heart back up but what I was starting to get to say is uh, when your survival alarm is ringing, it sends you into fight, flight, freeze, and this person that you love and adore all of a sudden starts to feel like the enemy or feel like somebody who's out to hurt me. Just momentarily while while your uh, chemicals, your, your fear chemicals are raging. And so I teach people as soon as they hear the word or think the thought that I'm being rejected, let's say, if that's your button, or I'm I'm being controlled, that's another common button. So if you if you get that survival alarm emotional and and uh physiological reaction, learn first of all to accept that that's probably going to happen that we all have insecurities and learn what the early warning signs of those are, such as I want to run out of the door, I want to get out of here as fast as I can, or I want to get this person to shut up, or I want to punch a wall, or uh, or I'm completely frozen like deer in a headlight. Or I start judging my partner and and getting talkative, pursuing, trying to get more information. Different people have all these different reactive behaviors that are early warning signs that your button has just gotten pushed and you ought to shut up and pause and really do some conscious breathing, ground yourself by feeling your feet on the floor, your butt on the chair. These calming practices are so important and once you learn how to do that, and you just have to take responsibility for, you know, life is going to hit you with shit, and you're going to have to do this self-calming. It's not like you have to get your partner to totally change so that you never feel discomfort. It's, it's not That's not really the name of the game. For me, the name of the game is intimacy as a voyage to self-knowledge and deeper awareness, eventually, perhaps, so that you stop identifying with your ego 
egoic needs like, you know, I need you to always say yes to me, which was certainly one of mine. Didn't never want to hear no. Uh, so you pause. You calm yourself. And you actually out loud. I get couples, if you're in the couple form, I'll get them to make an agreement to anytime anybody says the word pause, you're going to stop talking and stop you know, yelling at each other or defending or trying to be right or whatever. You just stop. I just all want that. to interrupt you, interrupt yeah. you there just for a second because um, my partner, my tenure partner, and I, um, we kind of just naturally arrived at that. And when I read your book, I thought, wow, that's cool because we kind of figured that one out. We, we we're starting to when we were in the, what you call the power struggle phase. We were yelling and screaming and slamming doors, and then I finally said, you know what? I think we need to have a timeout. And we just would do the timeout symbol with our hands. And if either one of us did that, it had to be sacred. And it was hard at mm. first, just like you say in your book, it was hard at first where one of us would still want to get that final part, parting shot in. But we got better at it, and we just would shut up. We'd zip it if either one of us mm. did that because any anything said after that point that we're so triggered is not going to be pretty, and we're going to regret it later and have more cleanup to do. So we started doing that, and it made such a huge difference, and I felt so validated when I saw you had written about it in the book. <laughs> that is so wonderful for me to to hear you tell about that, because all the points you just made are points that I'm teaching people, too, is that if you keep talking, mm-hmm. you're just going to dig your hole deeper, and it's going to take you mm-hmm. longer to get connected again and do the repair. So once you've paused and calmed yourself, then... If you want to, if you know how to, give yourself a little compassion. I even hug myself. I, I literally hug myself when I'm triggered. Just a little two-second hug is all I need now to kind of say, okay, it's okay. It's okay to feel pain. That's what the hug is for. It's like a good mother tending to a hurting child. And I mm-hmm. give a whole process in the in the book called compassionate self inquiry. So that's mm-hmm. that's that piece. And then once you're calm and you've really connected with yourself and said, you know, little Susan, it's okay to feel what you're feeling. Then you go back and talk to your partner and give a repair statement that takes less than five minutes to deliver, and then you're done. <laughs> and you you. Mm-hmm. you you apologize if you did anything that was really out of line, like yelling and name-calling. You apologize and you say, this. I was triggered. It was probably my fear of abandonment acting up there. And if I had it to do over, I would have told you what I was feeling, what I was needing. And, you know, and you say the actual feelings and needs. And I would have asked for reassurance that I'm important to you or some mm-hmm. other yeah, and that, thing that you actually right, need. Exactly, and that's a whole other bundle of skills to learn is how to figure out what you need and then to develop the courage to ask for it. <laughs> yes, yes. I take couples through a whole lot of uh, exercises that help them learn what what their core fears are. But I mentioned mm-hmm. a couple of them, fear of being controlled, abandoned, rejected. And uh, most people have more than one button. Right. Um, and, you know, I found it really interesting in the book, uh, the five-minute relationship repair book, where you were talking about the survival alarm system and the brain chemistry and all that, and how 
our survival alarm system is generalized, like it's looking for anything that even remotely might be a threat. So that explains Mm -hmm. a lot how we can get triggered so easily in a relationship when our partner says, I didn't mean it that way at all. That's not what I was going for. But our survival alarm system is really broad and like looking for anything in that vicinity. So that was really interesting to hear that. Yeah, it's like we grow up with a kind of a a complex of memories and feelings that Eckhart Tolle calls it the pain body, but it's it's just a, mm-hmm. we could call it the pain a psychologist would call it the pain complex. And as you go through life, you collect more evidence that you're not lovable. If that's what your original pain was about, you collect more right. evidence that you're incompetent and can't do it right and somebody's always going to be correcting you or telling you what to do and they you know and somebody says well did did, did you fix the fence yet and if you've got this fear that you're not good enough or not competent somebody says did you fix the fence yet stop telling me what to do yeah you know, that <laughs> kind of thing everything gets read through the lens of your core fear. And once we're on to that core fear, once we kind of know our automatic tendencies, we gain power over them. They don't have so much power over us. That's the idea, to come to a place where you have choice and you can slow down your reaction time. Brilliant. I love that. Thank you so much. Um, So you talked about how open relationship can be... um, a great tool for inner growth and just relationship in general is you called it intimacy as a voyage of self-knowledge to overcome our egoic needs. Um, Can you talk about some of the downsides of open relationship or at least from your experience? Yeah. Well, what happened for me uh, that made me move away from it was it's like, it's like, I got all I I got all I needed to get out of that journey. It's like I mind my shadow, I mind my insecurity and I it, it's just like I had just other things I wanted to do with my time besides juggle multiple lover relationships. It was right. time for me. So it was time. The downside was it takes time to have more than one intimate relationship. And I'm a career girl. And uh, at the time I had stepkids, too. I never had my own biological kids. But, you know, I don't think we were full time with uh, two kind of little kids. You know, it's like, who needs, it was like for me, it was who needs this? shit, you know, because there was still going to be shit, even though I was growing, you know, yeah. so I guess a lot of a lot of people say that, that it just takes a lot of time to process, because if you, because a really high integrity poly relationship is an honest relationship, and there's a lot more that, you, a lot more, let's say, inconvenient truths that you have to be honest about. You know, right. I mean, I'm a real warrior. Maybe some people decide, well, we're, you know, we're just not going to see each other three nights a week and don't ask, don't tell. And that's fine, too. I guess that probably would have been a better solution now that I think about it. Well, you know, it I think it's the time processing is one of the biggest downsides. 
Yeah, no, you're right. It's definitely a time-consuming thing, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's a little bit of a privileged type of relationship because you kind of have to have enough money to have that free time to have more than one relationship. You know, if you're working three right. jobs, uh, you know, or working 12 hours a day, you can barely have one. Um, but there is that fine line where we want to have the intimacy that comes from having these conversations and sharing our mm-hmm. wants and needs and feelings. But we also want simplicity in life. And I was working with a client recently who who dates couples and he also dates single women and he was having dinner with a single woman and one of the members of a couple, the female member of the couple came to join them, but uh, he didn't really tell the women like what was going on. (laughs) So it ended up being, you know, crash and burn kind of experience at this restaurant. So I was trying to help him. Like he wants simplicity in his life and he thinks he's being honest because he tells everybody I date other people. But there's a little more than just that that you need to do. So we have That's to find right. that You line need to say, I'm like, going to go we, see her tonight, and you might run into us. You know, things like that. Something yeah, like a that, lot yeah. of, you, you learn these communication skills in the, in the trenches. <laughs> exactly right. Um, so uh, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. We're speaking with Susan Campbell, who's a respected relationship coach and author. And um, I read your book, The Couple's Journey, back in the early 90s, um, and then your the follow-up book to that, the Beyond the Power Struggle. Um, can you just talk briefly, for people that aren't familiar with your work, about the, the stages of relationship and why the power struggle needed its own separate book? <laughs> <laughs> I love that question, and I don't, I'm always happy when I find out that people read those books because I think they were very important books. Uh, mm-hmm. So the couple's journey was uh, interviews with about a hundred couples uh, who I talked to about how your relationship changed from when you first met to now, and these were all committed couples and some of them were poly but they were definitely focused on this one primary relationship and so people will just from your own life you'll realize the first stage we emphasize our similarities i call that the romance stage and there's a there's developmental tasks with each stage so the developmental task of that stage is bonding, creating a really secure bond. So that's one of the reasons you don't bring up, a lot of times people don't bring up too much conflict. It's an unconscious process. See, I like these developmental processes that I'm going to describe are unconscious, but I wanted to write a book to make them more conscious so we could say, okay, in the romance stage there's a tendency to deny your differences and to avoid conflict, but we don't have to do that. You know, we could bring in a little more conflict in the early stage, but know also that 
a new relationship is like a little baby, and you do have to treat it a little bit gently, but I don't mean to mm-hmm. lie. I just mean to notice your tendency to want to lie and maybe mm-hmm. reveal your fear of speaking about things. So there's mm-hmm. that. So that's the romance stage. But once people are fairly securely bonded, it's, it's sort of like the developmental arc of a child development. You know, bonding is first, and then... Once you're kind of secure with each other, that's when the conversation about Polly might come up, for example. You know, maybe somebody didn't bring this up for a while until they felt like they had more security. This this will happen in some of the couples I work with. And that's I don't think that's a good idea, you know, to wait on that one. But uh, it's it's kind of this natural tendency or just things that you didn't even realize you were not disclosing when during the bonding romance stage it, it just didn't it didn't come up but now you're kind of finding some fault with the way this person does things now that's the power struggle stage you, you start to differentiate and you, you just can't help but have differences any two people are going to have differences and to the extent that you've pushed them down and swept them under the rug they might come out in in uh, a very unpleasant way, but usually it's just we find ourselves struggling and disagreeing and not knowing how to deal with this. And the, the reason the power struggle deserved its own book is because this is where most couples get stuck. It's the very work that I've been writing books about since then, which is how to use the unpleasant experiences that happen between people for inner development, learning, and truly mutual learning and and, and mm-hmm. deeper intimacy, because you're you're getting to know your own shadow and you're revealing your shadow to your partner. So it's like the power struggle stage is where the differences start to create pain, and then there's this transition to where you stop trying to change your partner, and you realize, hey. I'm trying to change him because he pushes my button, and actually, it's my button. It's my insecurity, and if, uh, if you know, if I didn't have this insecurity, I wouldn't need him to change. And it, mm-hmm. it's like I say, the power struggle stage is when you want your partner to change so that you can feel better. And mm-hmm. audiences will laugh when I say that because they recognize this. And then, so you, but you give up that particular struggle and you see what you can learn from your differences and that then that brings you into the stability stage and the stability stage is all the work that we've been talking about with the repair process and the pausing and revealing your deeper needs and your insecurities and then uh after stability so so far we've had romance stage power struggle stage stability then there's commitment where now we've kind of gotten a methodology for working with our differences. And at this point, when we agree to something, it really means something. It's it's like we're all we're there's more of more of me really in the relationship because I'm more self-aware now. When you're less developed couple, commitments don't mean that much because you don't know yourself. You're going to you're, you're going to Often you're going to betray your partner. You're you're going to let them down. Not that that doesn't happen at any stage, really. It could happen. But if you know yourself better, you're going to make agreements that you can really keep. 
And that's called the commitment stage, where your agreements mean something. And you actually are less of an individual and you're more of a we system is what I called it. It's like you, like I had a, one of my husbands was very jealous and insecure if I would come home late or something from work and he'd think I was with another man. And uh, so at first during the power struggle stage, I would criticize him and say, that's silly, stuff like that. And, um, you know, we worked it through to the point finally where I actually cared from a sincere place to call him and say, honey, I'm I'm going to be late. I mean, most people might do this anyway, you know, but I just hadn't, it hadn't really occurred to me to be that much of a caretaker. But I was sincere. It wasn't so he won't be mad at me when I get home. It wasn't a strategic motive. It was I could feel his pain as my pain, kind of. So that's what happens when you get to become a we system with somebody else. And that takes mm-hmm. some inner work before you can uh, really, that's, that's beyond ego. It doesn't mean you don't have any ego, but you're, you're less attached to getting your way. And it just, you just have merged a little bit more. And then the co-creative stage. So let me just ask stage. you a question about yeah, that sure, before, sure. You go, before you go to the co-creative stage. Um, so you said commitments don't mean that much before the commitment stage because you don't know yourself well. So can you explain a little bit more about why knowing yourself well allows you to keep your agreements better? Well, we have even, you know, you know how even people who aren't in relationship, you make New Year's resolutions and you don't keep them. Oh, you know, you make yeah. agreements with yourself and don't keep them because you haven't gotten to know all the fears that are under there, the fear of success or the fear of failure or the fear of anybody expecting anything of me, all the, all the self-sabotaging fears that keep you from keeping agreements with yourself. And so... Mm-hmm. That's kind of parallel to a couple where you might see yourself disappointing each other over and over, and then you realize, okay, what was this expectation based on that was disappointed here? What? Oh, that's that's a naive expectation because I've got this buried pain that I don't want to have to ask for what I want. Maybe I have an expectation that my partner, that I should be able to ask once or hint or or not even ask. If they love me, they would know what I want. Uh, or I've told a, a, a story about when I got what I want. It, pe- people will justify not asking for what they want rather than realizing that that's their own shadow of fear of perhaps being disappointed or being uh, hearing no and that sort of thing. So got it. those kind of things all of a sudden wake you up to, hey, something's got to change inside here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, and then this co-creation the stage. Co-creation, yes. Yeah. <laughs> was, was where, couple, where two people are not only getting along pretty good now and they know how to work out their, their conflicts, but they're supporting each other in some kind of service work to the world or something conscious, consciously created like great dinner parties or costume parties or, you know, it doesn't have to be writing a book or doing a TV show together. Although one of the, one of the couples I interviewed was Michael and Justine Toms who started New Dimensions Radio 
some oh. of our people might might know them. Michael is yeah. deceased now, but uh, back in the 70s when I was interviewing people for this book, they told me how they went on a, a long trip in their Volkswagen bus across the country to to kind of figure out it was like a midlife crisis for both of them to kind of figure out what their next move was and they developed this co-creative relationship of we're going to start this radio show and we're going to Beautiful. do what he's he's good at certain things she's good at certain things we're going to make an amalgam of that and and it's been a great contribution nice thank you um so you write a lot about honesty um one of the things you say is that you can only be honest as you are self-aware. What do you mean by that? Well, a lot of people will shoot their mouth off about, uh, well, I got an example from from today, a a client whose uh, young adult son says he wants to be a salesman, but she knows she knows he doesn't want to, I mean, she knows he's not going to be any good at sales. And, you know, I, probably would agree with her but anyway she says my friends tell my friends say I should just tell him the naked truth so I said well what's the naked truth you would tell him she says it you'll never be a salesman it's not your calling you'll never be a salesman and I said well is that the way you you speak your truth to people like God here. I said that. Right. I said, you know, I can see, I said, I kind of agree with you. I might say I really believe strongly that you're going right. in the wrong direction, son. You know, I have this data to back it up, and I so want for you to have a successful life here. You know, I said, what if you put a little more heart into it, you know? Right. And she was right. telling me how everybody's offended by her truth, and I found out what her truth was, and it it wasn't right. very self-aware, you know, and it wasn't. Uh-huh. It had not very much to do with herself, you know. Another one of my little sayings is, "You can only be honest about yourself." In other words, what do you? I mean, it, it can be an assessment, you know. It's my belief based on seeing you all these years. This is my assessment. It's my diagnosis of you, whatever you want to say. But you got to own it as your own, and um, the more self-aware I am the more I can reveal what's really going on in me because that's the relevant honesty. You know, the the judgments and the comparisons, you know, well, you're you know, you're fat and I'm thin, you know, that that kind of stuff. Um that that level of communication it just it isn't it isn't very alive. So I mm-hmm. I when I'm talking about honesty i'm talking about something that y- it's about you it's something you can really know and yeah it makes me think so it's about a moving target you're always getting to know yourself more and so you're always going to be capable of more and more uh complete honesty right it makes me think of nonviolent communication where we learn to make i statements and we learn to name the objective event that happened rather than our subjective interpretation of it. And to communicate that way, it 
it takes a reorientation to your own inner experience. And we don't learn that in our society. We usually learn to blame other people, judge other people. So is that kind of what you're saying is the practice of turning inward and tuning into what my experience is and then being able to compassionately communicate that to someone else? Yeah. And well, I mean, what, what you just said about knowing the data, you know, this is what happened. I, I saw you talking to that man while you were looking at the floor. You know, let's say, let's say, I'm the mother and he's the guy who wants to be a salesman. I saw you talk to that man and you were looking at the floor the whole time. Uh, and what came up in me was a fear. You know, that would be, or you know, like you said, knowing the difference between the data and the interpretation uh, mm-hmm. and well, what that meant to me when I saw you looking at the floor was that you're kind of afraid of real strong contact with people uh, and then just lay that out, you know, just say that's just right, coming right, for right. me, you know. Right, got it. And the more defended you are as a person, you know, you can't you can't just come up with, with those uh, cr- creative and useful ways of communicating if you're just a real defended person with a lot of shoulds and you just don't know yourself very well. So that's back to the self-aware thing. You kind of have mm-hmm. to be pretty relaxed with yourself to be, you know, when I say relaxed, I mean, you know, know the parts of yourself that you're not real proud of, but have, you know, have managed whatever shame you've got around it so you're not all constipated about revealing what's going on in you because if you can just constantly reveal what's going on in you with with a certain amount of ease uh well first of all it's just a friendlier connection you know that has nothing to do with honesty but you're definitely going to be more accepting of life as it is and then the more accepting of life as it is the more life you can actually see it's like your vision is cleared up you're not so many blind spots Mm -hmm. so you can be honest about more and more and more things Mm -hmm. excellent um so i want to save time to talk about the work that you've been doing with intentional community it's a passion of mine as well but before we do i just have one other question to ask you about the poly lifestyle um what does your work have to offer to people who can't seem to agree on the terms of their lifestyle? Like, for example, when one person doesn't want to tell their kids and the other one does, or um, they have different ways that they want to practice non-monogamy. What what does your work have to offer those people? Well, one of the skills that I teach people who are in this predicament is a skill called holding differences. Uh, so that's in the book Getting Real, but also the book Saying What's Real. And the, I'll just name what holding differences means first. And I think most of us, when you listen to this definition, you'll agree that it's a, a kind of a state that we'd all like to aspire to. It's the ability to deeply listen and empathize with another person whom you violently disagree with or whose position mm. threatens you while wow, we still not losing. Current... Yeah, in this world right. that we've got created yeah. for ourselves, in this polarized world, right, right. To, to be able to really listen to that point of view without losing your own and without losing connection to, to yourself and to your heart, you know? So holding differences. Freud had a term, binding tension. 
Sigmund Freud. He said the mark of a mature person is the ability to bind tension. Some of us in the Tantra community, we talk about holding a charge. All of these things are related. It's the ability to take things that are uncomfortable and two poles, like I want to be monogamous and and and, and you want to be non-monogamous. And so let's take that as an example. So I have a couple that I talk about in uh, the Couple's Journey book who had this conflict. And I coach them to talk you know, talk about their wants, talk about their feelings, but don't make any decision yet. So they had to kind of, this this was sort of a win for the person who wanted to stay monogamous. You know, don't don't go anywhere from where you are now. Just hold the difference for a while. Don't try to quickly decide something as as deep and complex as this issue. See, people, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I mean, you have a right to just. If somebody says they want to be poly and you don't, you have a right to just say, well, you know, have a nice life. We can be friends, but we don't want to be partners. I mean, that's that's always an option. But this couple had already invested a lot in being together, and the, the non-monogamy question came up later. And so, and that'll happen. That'll happen for a lot of people. And um, so the ability to listen and empathize and, and not and, and and not give in to the partner, not give in for fear of losing them, but not, you're, you're just you're not attached to your position either. You're you're just kind of this is what I want, this is what I feel, and keep communicating across that difference. It's it's pretty excruciating. It's pretty hard. I've I've done it myself. Uh, it's hard not to just want to get rid of the tension and make a quick decision. Like I'm out of here. But this, mm-hmm. but this is a skill that I, 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 you know, I have a pretty good sales pitch when I'm working with couples about the value of not taking action until you've processed all the feelings that are underneath the action. And uh, I've seen, I've seen this work itself through in ways that are just, let's say, surprising to the couple. Sometimes what people need more than anything is to fully come out with who they are, like a, a, somebody who's never really been monogamous, who's always faked faked monogamy and snuck around, and all of a sudden, let's say it's a he, because in this in this couple it was the he. He, he just he's made up his mind. He's just going to be totally himself, and just by going through the process of being totally yourself, that can change something within the couple. Mm-hmm. So there's that, and there's just a little quickie communication tool that's like I hear that you feel or want a, like I hear or that you want to tell our kids that we're we're now poly, and I have a different position on that and a, and a different feeling. Can I tell you how I see it? And just that phraseology also just slows things down and you know less lessens the defensiveness on both parts it's like respectful so that's like a a little sentence device the book saying what's real has seven different sentence devices like this that if you fill in the blanks they bring your conversation right where it needs to be which is usually right in the present moment i vow 
So those are yeah. Wow, things that's really I offer. Yeah, that's really helpful, Susan, because it is our natural tendency to want to resolve the conflict as soon as possible, but to teach people to sit with the discomfort and let the feelings kind of process themselves through can create some kind of shift that they weren't even expecting. So that that's brilliant. Yes. I love that. Okay, well, let's move on to um, talking about your experience with intentional community and co-housing groups. What are some mm-hmm. of the biggest issues that come up with uh, people that live in those kinds of communities? Well, in uh, 1981, I got a grant from the Tides Foundation, which is part of the San Francisco Foundation, $150,000 to go visit 32 intentional communities along the West Coast of California. What, what a privilege. Oh. I mean, it was like I took the yeah. year off and, and uh, got a big van and uh, hired nice. One, two, three assistants. So there was two women and two men, and we traveled around to different communities. Uh, there's a farm community down in, you know, the farm, the Tennessee farm. There was a farm community down in uh, San Diego area, and then we went to the Ananda Cooperative Village community in Nevada City, and then a lot of others that aren't mm-hmm. so famous. There were um, communities that had a central guru figure, and there were communities that were very democratic decision-making based and uh, like a Quaker community in Oregon called Alpha Farm. That one is actually fairly well known too. So we visited all these communities and the uh, issues that seem to emerge are kind of, and the the idea behind the book was what are some of the practices that that this movement and these communities have developed that you know it's easier to develop in a small experimental unit that could actually be useful for mainstream culture to imitate and learn from and so the you know issues the seven i i had seven issues that i defined i'll just mention them shared vision shared agreements so certainly the idea of having a shared agreement about what we're about if you apply that to mm-hmm. this you and I were kind of snickering about, you know, the current polarization. Like, we really don't have a shared agreement about what's good and bad, even. <laughs> right. The truth in this culture. But, and it was certainly easier to get shared agreement and shared vision uh, in those communities that had kind of a, a common spiritual practice or a central guru like Kriyananda or something like that than it was the democratic communities. The more diversity um, of, of points of view, you know, just, just like, duh, we know this, the, more, the harder it is to mm-hmm. get anything done. Okay, so that was just one thing. Mm-hmm. Governance was another issue. I won't mention governance and leadership, uh, economics and work. And these these are all, like, things we have to deal with in the mainstream, too. But it was much easier mm-hmm. to see these issues when I studied the communities. Education. And these most of these communities had a much more, like, say, child-centered education than the kind of education that indoctrinates people to hustle. You know, nature-centered, earth-centered, feeling-centered. And that, that was just, just a, a nice thing to see. And, and the kids... Mm-hmm seemed to turn out fine because I, I know some mm-hmm. of them later on. Health, health practices, uh, relationships. They Each each of 
the the communities had their own relationship forms and i might I might quote something from the book in a minute about uh open relationships and group marriages and stuff okay because it's really okay to yeah the, the theme of your show uh and the final thing was dealing with change because communities or groups or any anything need to be able to adapt to their surroundings like globalization is is something that the US has had to adapt to in terms of its economic and social forms the internet and so forth so um those those are just common issues and it just like it helps me to re I was just knowing I was going to be on your show. I just kind of re-looked at this book and I thought, Jesus. Yeah, please a go lot ahead and quote that. Apply because we, to we our do current only, situation. We yeah, only have a few minutes. Yeah, please quote so that because we only have a few minutes. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, let me just quote this thing here. In my visit to Alternative America, I saw that groups often adopted new forms, and we're, this was the relationship forms now in order to help support values and attitudes which could serve personal and social evolution. For example, several Earth community groups practice a kind of group marriage. And that I won't go into the form of the group marriage exactly, but they, you know, they would all live in one house and um switch off, you know, they could just have all different partners. Group marriage, which they feel helps people to become detached from feelings of possessiveness and jealousy, feelings which seem to hinder human cooperation. Other groups consciously place their feeling of belonging to the group as a tribe above their primary pair relationships in the group. They feel that this helps people put the friendship aspect of their relationship first and the romantic aspect second which in turn encourages them to see each other more as free and unique individuals than as objects of gratification. So that's just, you know, these are pretty high ideals uh, that they were going well, no, for. I love there's that. There's something about group consciousness, you know, like, yeah, sa- sacrificing your individual little need for romance and ego for the good of the group, for the good of cooperation. Right. Well, it reminds me of Sex at Dawn, the book, where they talk about mm. our Paleolithic ancestors were living in tribes and they needed to share everything for survival. So sex yeah. was just one of the things they shared. It wasn't just, I'm only going to have sex with this one person. Um, and we think of it as really racy and kinky now, but to them it was just sex was another body function like anything else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this whole notion of cooperation, I mean, if there's any vision that I have about the future of humanity, it's we really need to learn to cooperate, and we really aren't mm-hmm. good at it. And right. so anything exactly. that might cut down on your ego identification and make us feel more like a tribe, and like one humanity, well, I don't know what will do that. Uh, but I know, I know we're not all going to become poly or do a group marriage, but uh, anything that can do that, uh, we got to at least look for it. Right. Well, actually, we, you know, I just to push against what you said a little bit, I think that humans are excellent at cooperation, but for some reason we've set up societal structures that have told us that that's weak or undesirable or something, but I think our ability to cooperate is why we've come to dominate the planet. <laughs> that's a good point. That's a good point, and that's real. That's, I think that's true. Um 
and if we could somehow learn to live and let live and you know little different pockets of cooperation what we what we have trouble right with right now is a, a shared agreement about what's valuable to cooperate toward right but I love the time that you spent in community. So I didn't realize you had a book about that. What's it called? Yeah, it's called Earth Community, Living Experiments okay. in Cultural Transformation. And it's on Kindle. It's cheap. It's like five bucks or something on Kindle. So Great. Yeah, because up, those are Kindle little microcosms. Right. Yeah. So those are, you know, many examples of how we can all live together and practice alternative relationships with the support of a community um, because it's not always easy to be polyamorous or non-monogamous in our greater world with so much judgment around us. So I think these communities are a safe place for a lot of people to experiment with their relationship styles. So I'm glad they exist. Yeah. And that's how social change happens is small subgroups living out a new vision. And I know we're running out of time here. <laughs> we? we are, and I thank you so much, Susan. It's just been absolutely delightful to speak with you. The time just flew by. And um, mm-hmm. can you tell our listeners how they can reach you if they want more information? And I believe you also have a gift for everybody. Yes. Um, first of all, any, anybody who goes to my website, uh, susancampbell.com, Campbell, let's spell like Campbell Soup. So it's www.susancampbell.com on the home page. You can click where it says get a free ebook and subscribe to my newsletter and you will get a free ebook about this compassionate self-inquiry process that I alluded to which is a great thing to do after you get triggered uh so you'll be on my mailing list and you'll also uh get that it's that's part of a bigger ebook that's called getting real confidence so please mm-hmm. stay in touch with me if if there's anything that um that I can do for you. I have a free group coaching call once a month. I just I just finished it an hour ago. Every first Tuesday, uh, before listening to Sumati, listen to me. And we don't just listen. I, I help people with problems that are coming up in their relationships here and now. And uh, get my books, 5-Minute Relationship Repair is the most recent one and all the books are listed on the website and they're also you can google me up or go to amazon and see my books they're everywhere i'm everywhere Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> you're everywhere on that web thank you so much for being thank you so much susan for being on the show it was just a delight to have you and i wish you all the best thank you it was fun okay bye-bye so next week on leading edge love radio we'll be speaking with amber di pietra She is a poet, a performance artist, a writer, a teacher, an intimacy coach, and also a disability artist. So that'll be really interesting to hear about um, disability and how people with disabilities have, um, how that affects their relationships and intimacy and sexuality. So tune in next week at 6 p.m. on Leading Edge Love Radio, and we'll talk to you then. Good night.